So what does God require of us? This is a question that gets asked a lot. I find a lot of people say, well, what is God's will for me? What am I supposed to be doing? As a Christian, I'm a new believer or I'm an old believer. Life is changing. What does God require of me? What is God's will for me? And in many respects, it's quite simple because we have the Great Commission. Yeah? So we love God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, our bodies. We love our neighbors as ourselves. And we go and make disciples. So we go and tell people about Jesus. That, that's the frame that we all operate in. But within this, I find the little scripture we're going to look at actually looks at the heart of how we operate, how we live our lives on a, on a daily basis. If we look at this entire chapter of Micah 6, there's a lot about the wording and the structure that this issue is very important to God. And I, I checked a couple of, sort of different um, versions and translations, and it's all very clear. God's saying, stop, I need you to listen. I need you to listen to this. And it, it comes through very clearly in actual wording and the structure, not of just um, chapter 6, but all the way through. So God is saying, please, I want you to listen. I want you to stop I want you to listen. Is that um, thingy with Bob working? No. Okay. In the first bit, um, he's calling the people out. He's saying, you have forgotten my providence, my provision. I have delivered you out of a dreadful situation in Egypt. I've delivered you out of slavery. Now that you're comfortable and you're settled in the land yeah, that I have given you, with all the promises that I've made you, you've forgotten it. You've turned away. You're complaining. You've become complacent. And you've forgotten my providence, my providential care, to you as a nation and as a people. You've forgotten that. This chapter also really underlines God's holiness, that he cannot be fooled, that while we may bring the big sacrifices, where we, we may have the ritual and do what we need to do, God cannot be fooled. It's not what he asked where he asked for one lamb to be slaughtered, if you are bringing a hundred to show off, God's not fooled. He only asked for one lamb to be slaughtered. So why do the rest? And this chapter outlines a lot of God's um, discontent with the people. He's saying, I cannot be fooled. It also, after verse 8, which we're going to look at in more detail, it also lists, what if we don't listen? What are the consequences? And I think a lot in the modern church, we forget the consequence. It's all about the glory. It's all about the grace. It's all about the great stuff, the blessing. But God's saying, you know what? There is also a consequence. 
And we tend to ignore that if we don't do what he wants us to do through love. And when he speaks about fairness and justice, and we think about our modern world, what then are we actually looking at? Can we just flick through <coughs> quite a bit? There we go. I said, this is the world I live in, the world I work in. So what is the state of our world? This, this one here, the earth, the top 1% controls 46% of the world's wealth. That is staggering. They own it. I think it comes down to six corporations own most of your, our retail sector, yeah, globally. So you think of a company like Coca-Cola, yeah, they actually do an amazing amount of good, by the way. <laughs> I need to put that out there. But equally, if you go into the deepest, darkest desert of nowhere, you'll find a Coke can. Yeah. If you go, I'm convinced they're on Mars already, actually. The power of the corporation is huge. You think of the amount of water they use to produce a can of Coke. They employ people globally to ensure that no one disrupts their business model. And that is often a violent oppression of workforces in certain countries because the state allows it. Out of, if you think of the global economy, yeah, as a mix of corporations, the big guys, and governments, what would you, any guesses as to the percentage of power? Who would you say owns more, controls more power in a global context. Hmm? A corporate, yes. If you look at the global economy, 51% of global wealth and power lies with companies, 49% with governments. There are certain companies where their gross domestic product is greater than a lot of medium-sized, fairly well-developed countries. Okay. This is 2.6 billion people exist on less than $2 a day. And obviously I've put the clock, the ticking clock, in terms of climate change, Earth's resources. Um, this is sort of global context, okay, that we are living in. And Micah addresses a lot of this. Just read it, what he says. He addresses a lot of this. If we just go on to the next picture, to bring it right down to our shopping habits. And um, this is just a graphic of the breakdown of the cost of a T-shirt, fairly simple. And you can see the pay to the worker. So if you're paying 17 um, euros for a T-shirt, 
the worker who's actually made it, who potentially is working 12 hours a day in a sweatshop, is getting 18 cents okay, of that. Yeah? You can see that. The statistic underneath actually comes from one of my colleagues, a big survey done, that 39% of suppliers, so that's actual factories in Bangladesh, in Turkey, India, China, um, accepted orders below the cost of production in 2015. And that means that they can't pay their workforce at the end of the day. I actually met an owner in Bangladesh. He said that over a three-year period, because he was so desperate to keep the business, that he had run at a loss of approximately $12 million every year for three years. He could not sustain it. And that is the pressure that has been put by what we call purchasing practices. Yeah, so that's the buyers here in the West pushing prices down to the factory owners. If we go on to the next picture, another very quick one. This is the picture of a banana. Yeah, no guess the surprises there. It's a banana. Um, but just having a look at the breakdown, it's actually the biggest commodity um, across Europe um, is a banana. And this is also fair traded, so it's, you know, this is not sort of um, dodgy bananas, if I could put it that way. And this is, the, if you look at the breakdown of who gets what um, in what we call the value chain okay, of a banana. So from the production from the plantation all the way through to us buying it. And you can see where the profit margins lie, where the percentages lie. <coughs> and I know I've heard some statistics that it would, if we just paid one more penny per banana, workers at the end of the chain, or the beginning of the chain, depending on how you look at it, would be able to earn a living wage. That means a, a wage where they could pay for food and family Right. Can we go on to the next one? Again, um, we look at the world we're living in at the moment. I don't know about you, but I've almost got to the point of thinking, have we gone mad or what? <laughs> yeah? Um, at some of the stuff we're reading and with the things people are saying, outrageous. We've got this sort of geopolitical madness going on. Yeah? People sort of nudging each other, saying, oh, you start the fight, you start the fight, and then we can bomb you, yeah, we will start. It's madness. We have a lot of war and conflict, all this stuff bubbling under the surface. I mean, look at the Yemen, for heaven's sake. Yeah? I get exercised by things. We've got this rise of politics of fear. If you want to read a good book, Naomi Klein really draws this out, this politics of fear. See, they're coming to get you. Someone's coming to kill you. Someone's coming to do this to you. Okay, this politics of fear is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger around the globe. We've got new corridors of trade emerging. So we've got the rise of, of trade across Africa, your, um, the new Silk Road, yeah, um, which is the Chinese initiative. Corridors of trade, they call them, but equally they are corridors of power. Okay, that are starting to emerge. So in the, in the past, where you had um, a sort of an old a colonial model of economics, where Africa basically produced and supplied Europe, or Latin America produced and supplied 
North America, you've now got this major shift of trading partners. Where in the past, we as the UK, potentially um, European countries, could influence trade with a set of morality, a set of standards. Um, now we're finding, say, a, a farm in Africa will say, well, look, you know, China will give us five million pounds worth of orders and they don't really care what pesticides we use, what chemicals we use, how the thing is shipped, how workers are paid, okay, or treated. So there's, there's quite a power play there. There are implications. We've also got this rise of very nationalistic politics. And I do put this in context of my own experience in South Africa. I saw what nationalism, the extremes of nationalism, hugely dangerous for me. I know other people subscribe. Um, I'm not in judgment here. But for me, it is deeply concerning where we start to say them and us. They're different to us. In my world, and I qualify this, um, this statement, the cost of human lives, is now factored in as a commodity. I loathe the word human capital. Yeah? You're just something to be traded. You're a commodity. And it's built into our narrative in many ways. In wars and in factories, is a cost of doing business. We live in an era of disposable humanity. And that really upsets me, <laughs> that humans can be disposed of and that we have less value in certain contexts than a cup of water um, or a garment or a banana. Okay, that really, it really winds me up. <laughs> So let's move on. So I've just, like I say, I'm looking through this through my reality. This is the world I live in, but I'm seeing it more and more in our daily lives, in everything we read, everything we, we hear. Um, and having worked on a lot of policy, I understand the mechanism of drip-feeding a message until people start to believe it, and then it snowballs. It takes a sense of truth and reality, and then we, it comes out as a truth. Be very, please be very cautious. Um, guard our hearts and our minds to what we are seeing. So, what then does God require of us? Now, Nigel read um, another translation. I looked at various translations but I quite liked the message one. I think it just makes it real. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do. What God is looking for in men and women, it's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbors. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. I love that one. <laughs> Don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Yeah? And I just thought that really made sense for me. 
because um, I, ha- I, can, I can fall into that trap, yeah? Or I can take myself seriously. See what I'm doing. This is cool. I'm a do-gooder. I'm changing the world, okay? Yeah? And we get that walking on water syndrome. I work in that world. <laughs> and it's like, okay, actually I can do nothing <laughs> without God. So let's break this down very quickly. Let's look at this first bit about fairness and justice. Yeah? Fair and just. There we go. And what I, I sense God is saying to us here is we need to desire truth. It has to start here. Yeah? It has to start here. Within our hearts. Not our minds, our hearts. When we see injustice, when we see a lie, we have to be able to recognize it. So desire truth, yeah, is the first thing. We, as believers in Jesus, need to be people of integrity. And sometimes we have to almost be above the mark, okay, almost a bit OTT in terms of the integrity thing. And we need to be able to defend the oppressed, no matter who they are. And this, I I qualify this a little bit. Again, it's my reality. Um, I sometimes twitch a little bit when we see, how can I put it? I'm just thinking of the whole situation in Pakistan at the moment. And the woman who's been released from prison. There we go, thank you. And there's all this media hype. Yes. But actually, across that society, there are thousands of Christians being persecuted. Hand in hand with that is thousands of people who are trying to defend overall civil liberties. Yeah? Are being hammered and imprisoned. But we don't hear about them. And I really do believe as as Christians, we have to speak out for everybody. Yeah? Where there is oppression. Not just the one. We have to think about the 10,000 that are also in prison. It is wrong. Okay? So we have to desire truth. We have to be a people of integrity. And we have to defend the oppressed. That means actually taking a stand on things. If we go on to the next column, compassion and mercy. Again, it comes to the heart of the matter that we actually desire to do good. It it must come from here. We desire to do good. I've put there authentic compassion and mercy. I don't know, but... Oh, I can get under my skin <laughs> when we see this a compassion that is not authentic. Mm? And when we see, perhaps in a political arena, because again, that's my reality, um, in a business arena, where, oh, yes, of course we're going to do the right thing. <laughs> um, yes, we will. We'll look after people nicely. We're going to do this. But just vote for me or donate to me or whatever. Okay, I, that really. <laughs> does my head in. (laughs) 
Um, just recently, I had to have a go. There's a very big American company. Um, the workers are literally starving themselves to death. They've been on a hunger strike, and this company will not look at why there's a problem. And there's a huge problem. Oh, pooch. And... Um, You know, and they're making all these promises, but every time we speak to them, they shift and shift and shift, and people are now starting to die. And we've had to be very blunt with this company saying, stop it. You know, your, your workforce are not going to starve themselves to death because they're happy in that particular factory. Just look at what you're doing. And, oh, yes, we'll do this, we'll do that. So what I'm saying is compassion has to be authentic. It has to ring true. And Jesus himself said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall also obtain mercy. And I've put this underneath here in capitals. Ensures our justice is not changed with judgment. And, and sometimes we can speak out about things but if we're not speaking it through this lens of mercy and compassion, it comes out as judgment. Yeah? And I've had to really tension myself up because it's so easy to go into a situation with a heart of judgment and not justice. Yeah? So I really believe this compassion and mercy pillar helps us to do justice in a way that is not judgment. Next one, humility. This is really looking at the fact that we serve an omnipotent and omnipresent God, the God of all creation. He sang one of my favorite songs this morning. He wraps himself in light. Do you know what the speed of light is? Yeah? He is the God of all creation. And we are just a little speck in that whole plan. Okay? For me, that's where the humility comes. Um, we are something or part of something far greater than ourselves. Yeah? Far greater than our little world and our job and what we are doing. And it's also the fact of knowing that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And boy, oh boy, have I been hammered in my lifetime when I've stepped out in pride, when I've fallen into the trap of pride. Um, and I see that grace is lifted. Yeah? The grace to do what I'm meant to do evaporates. And I'm like, oh, what happened? And the Lord says, we need to recalibrate you, girl. Yeah, you're getting too full of yourself. You know, I'm God. <laughs> I love you. I've commissioned you to do stuff. I love you. But you've lost sight of where you fit in in the universe. <laughs> and for me, that is humility. Equally knowing that the task ahead is something that not me alone can sort out. That I am wholly reliant on him for wisdom, for resources, for daily provision, keeps 
my pride in check. Yeah? And I think this is an amazing combination. Um, if we go on to the next slide. And I, I, I saw this, I thought, oh, that's so nice. I wish I were clever enough to think of things like this. But just when we think about it in real terms, in practical day-to-day living, what does this actually mean? And I love this. The response of our heart, yeah, is this thing about looking upward for the justice, looking to God for justice, inward about loving mercy, understanding mercy, I stand here today because of the grace and the love and the mercy of Christ Jesus. I say at the beginning, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. But I stand here because of his grace. My sin was forgiven. I was wretched. I was lost. But he picked me up and he loved me. And then upward, walking humbly, walking humbly, but desiring truth, desiring more of him. Can we just go on, not this slide, just go to the next one. Very quickly, we're going to come back to this. Um, I like this. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. And actually, when I was thinking about armistice and um, a while ago, we read a vigil at Parliament, and I just had this enormous sense of grief over this nation, a grief that's never been resolved. Millions of men have died in this nation over a century. And there is this grief that hangs over the nation. So don't be daunted by it. This time, last week, a young man was murdered four doors down from my home. I live on Samus Road. And you can feel the grief. No one knew him. No one knew why he was there. But stabbed, brutally stabbed by a girl of 16 years of age. You can feel the grief on my street. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work. But neither are we free to abandon it. You cannot look away. And church, we cannot look away any longer. Our boys are dying on our streets. We cannot look away. The homelessness is rising and we cannot look away. People are starving in our neighborhood. We cannot look away. 
We have to get involved. How? What pushes the button or breaks your heart? That is a good indication as to what God is asking you to think about, to get involved in. What breaks your heart when you look out at society? What is it? I know for Tina, it's about kids dying. Yeah? I know for... Where are you? The food bank. Yeah? Homelessness, gang warfare. There are different things that push her. Uh, We can't do it all, but have a look. What breaks your heart? Is there an experience in your life that will help somebody else? I speak a lot to divorced women, single mothers who've raised kids. I have this natural affinity to say, well, you know what, sister, you can do it. You know what, it's going to be okay. You know what, it's going to get better. You're going to flourish regardless yeah, of the situation. There's a natural thing that God uses to network us with others. What do you have to hand that God can use? When I first came to the UK, some of you know I had nothing, um, like nothing, and I was really challenged. I'd, just, I'd been at another church, did, done Alpha, come to Forest Hill, and the Lord was saying, well, I said, but what can I do, Lord? I've got nothing, nothing. And there was this whole story about, um, who was his name, and the jawbone. Samson and the jawbone, and how he got the jawbone and he slayed the lion and he did so. And I thought, actually, you know what? I've got something called hospitality. Yeah? I could open my home because I had quite a big lounge and we had alphas there, we had house groups, we had all sorts of things going on in my home. That's all I had was a big lounge. <laughs> I didn't even have cups. Yeah? But we bought them over time. <laughs> So what I'm saying is, what is there that you've got in your hand that can make a difference? Yeah? It doesn't have to be big. For me, it was hospitality. Um, where has God placed you? What is your day job? Yeah? What is your day job? That's your mission field. That's where you are called to justice and fairness and mercy and humility. That's where the grace will flow, is where God has placed you. And who are you networked with? So I mentioned earlier, I'm the only one that does not have a degree. And I have to sometimes look around and I think, okay, this is funny, Lord. You've put me with all these horribly clever people. And then God says, yeah, but you've got me on your side. Yeah. And I've started to look at my life through God's eyes and thinking, you know what? Possibly we could do this. Yeah? Look who you networked with. Who's God put you in? I'm not talking Christian people. Nice. But look at the others. Yeah? Have a look who he's got you networked with. Who you're operating with. Yeah? 
That's where you're starting your justice, your humility, your fairness. That's where you bring in the grace of God, the love of Jesus into your place. Very quickly, can we go back to the other slide? Let's get started with some collective prayer. I, I discussed this with Nigel. Um, there is so much value in local community, in relationships, in church, where we stand together in solidarity with those around us. We cannot afford to look away any longer. I believe we are coming into a a very turbulent part of history as we navigate towards the 1st of April. We've got a housing crisis that manifests a lot as homelessness, young people not being able to get on the housing ladder. We've got an elderly services crisis of care and provision for the elderly in our society. We have youth services crisis and gang crime. We have growing inequality and poverty. And with the rollout of universal credit, there are gonna be people who are gonna be suffering, being forced into further debt. We have a food crisis. We're already, I know about you, but my trolley is getting more and more expensive. I'm now down to a basket. And we have a political horizon that is so uncertain at the moment. And I don't want this to go into who said what and let's do remain and let's stop and whatever, whatever. Let's just pray that we're going to get through this without civil disobedience, without disruption to our society, to the businesses, that there will be peace on our streets. Can we just get into little groups, please? Pick a subject. Pick a subject. It's just whatever pushes your button in your little groups. Can we just join in? And if we can just pray. Let's start with that upward look to heaven. Can we just pray? I had a, a word laid on my heart for somebody. But also I sense that if you've been stirred, if something has gone off in your spirit to think, oh, I should do that or I could get involved in this, whatever it might be. Um, I know there's a few here happy to pray. Happy to pray afterwards with anyone. If you feel you'd like to do something more, but you don't feel equipped, perhaps, to do it. I mean, there are others here from the leadership team who pray. But the word I had for somebody late last night and again this morning, and it's specific. The Lord wants you to know, whatever it is, it's as easy as crossing the road. Someone needs the, to cross the road there is restoration of an old friendship or an old relationship. And the Lord is saying, will you cross the road? Will you cross the road? I found this prayer, and before we sing, I'd just like to, it's a Franciscan blessing.
It's not normally what we hear. <laughs> but may God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. May God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. I release this in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.